Hello, amazing listeners. This is Jeremy Carney coming to you from the Making Digital Studio. My amazing co-host, Jared Stevens, our incredibly talented producer, Jacob Bernard, and I want to wish you and your family happy holidays. We have had an amazing year creating content that we hope has resonated with you, your work, and your teams. This will be the last episode of our first season as we take some time to be with our families as well as reflect on what is next for making digital. Like any good design and technology project, we want to do a retrospective and look at what went well and where we can improve before kicking off season two. If you have any ideas, please send them our way. We love your feedback. We want to end this season with an interview we did a while back with a good friend of ours, John Griffin. Since we've recorded this, John has accepted a job at another company, so some of the information might be a little bit outdated, but we still think it's an incredibly relevant podcast and a great way to end the year. Griff is someone who has inspired both of us in our career and who we are really excited to share with you. So thank you so much for following us over this last year as we've talked, learned, and grown along with you. Happy holidays from the Making Digital family. Hello, and welcome again to Making Digital, the show where we talk about design, development, product, and how they work together to make digital goodness. My name is Jared Stevens, and I am joined once again by my nifty co-host, Jeremy Carney. Say hello, Jeremy. You know you throw me off when you don't say lovely, co-host. I appreciate nifty. I think, hello, Jeremy. Yeah, I think, you know, on a scale of of one to ten, lovely is like a six, nifty is like a five and a half, so... You're doing all right. So, so, so did I lose half a point of approval in, in there somewhere? I don't know. I don't want to get specific on this. Let's okay. do that in a different episode. All right. All right. Down to the topic at hand. Jeremy, I have a question for you today. If you had to pick one thing that is the most frustrating about being an experienced designer, what would it be? And I know this is a tough question because you're not you're not a great designer, but could you answer that question for me? I would probably say it's the person that I've worked longest with in the design field. Touche. But but in order to have a better conversation, I'm gonna I'm gonna change to something that I feel like more of the audience can connect with. The thing that I'd love to talk about is the that idea of what you buy not being what you get. And we've heard jokes about it, people buying products on Instagram and what in the ad isn't what you get. There's a good connection to be made there to something that we go through in the design world. And that's when these elegant, innovative solutions that our teams have worked really hard to build don't look and act like what we thought they would when we envision them, when we finally get to deliver them. We start with research, business problems. We come up with solutions that we think are going to solve everything. Skip ahead through countless meetings, workshops, like various reviews, technical feasibility. You get to the end of it and so much. And sometimes it feels like more, like 90% of what was done never sees the light of day. That is what I like to coin the dark valley of design. You start, your team literally starts with nothing besides just a a problem to solve. 
and you build on all this research, you get exciting ideas together, and there's this momentum behind it, and you reach this peak of excitement for this project. And then it's reality sets in, or it's, it's not even really reality because our teams are planning for reality, but it's like you hit this point where you descend into this valley of, okay, now we actually have to ship it. And all of a sudden these compromises happen and the product stops looking like the thing you envisioned. And I've always had this question of how do you effectively connect these innovations based on real human insights to what ultimately gets delivered? It's such a frustrating situation. And that is what our topic is about today. Yeah, and... I know you're tired of hearing our voices, just our voices. I know I'm a little bit tired of hearing Jared. We're, we brought a guest today that we're really excited to talk to. Uh, we haven't talked to him in a while. He's someone that we used to work with at our uh, previous employer. I'd love to introduce you to John Griffin, the VP of Design and UX at First Citizens Bank. I hope I got that title right. More affectionately known to those who know him as Griff. Welcome to the show, Griff. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to talk to the two greatest ball busters in design podcast history. I love to listen to your podcast just to, to hear how you're going to rag on each other today. So that's, that's awesome. Thank you for the well, invite. We, we are so glad to have you. And I am personally so glad to have someone smart and articulate to talk. I don't know if you got that right, but I'm happy to, I'm here. I'm here. So I'm happy to, I'll weigh in. All right. Um, Griff, would you mind just uh, introducing yourself a bit and tell us a little bit uh, about your background and about what you're doing now? Sure. So I've been in design for a long time, 30 plus years, started before there was any such thing as the web, started in print design, did my first website in 93, and by 96, I was a webmaster. And this was this amazing period of the web where all young and stupid and just figuring stuff out, uh, and we did everything ourselves. So we wrote code. We worked with companies to, to figure out the, the brand and the marketing. We convinced people they needed a website back when that was a discussion. And, and then we made it work. And we made it work with some of the weirdest tech stacks that you've ever seen. Uh, before it was all nice and standardized, we wrote code from scratch using tables for layout. And so that was where I grew up in the web. And then through the years, like many of us, we, we progressed and uh web standards became a thing. And uh, eventually we, we realized that the website was just a piece of this overall experience and moved more into the, you know, 360 experience design kind of uh, realm. I did that with the, the first product I did that with was Mortgage at USAA several years ago. And USAA was, uh, that's where we all know each other from. And we, we had a uh, uh, great opportunities there for learning and to spread our wings. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I came up to North Carolina to start a design practice at a 120-year-old bank that had never had design. And it was really just at the very beginning of this experience design journey. And that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. We, we built and launched an entire website, uh, platformed in AEM, basically pulled down every page of the old site and completely redid it from ground up. And so have been building digital products in one way or another for many years now. 
It's awesome. I'd love to hear that story. And from a fellow former webmaster, I can definitely <laughs> sympathize with you on that title. I, I want to start a former webmasters association now. That brought back quite a bit of quite a few memories. I was actually it's working have to on be like a support group. Is what you need. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I, I was working on a project with Jared when uh, a common friend of ours made me go from table design to CSS. In fact, he told me he wouldn't take the, the contract with me unless I learned CSS for it. And so I'm familiar with tables and slicing and all of that. But yeah, I agree. That would, that would be a support group. I'll start working on the t-shirts now. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. That's so awesome. Griff, in our intro, we were talking about how so often in design, we come up with these great product ideas and these great experiences, but what ends up getting delivered doesn't match our vision for the product. And it doesn't feel like it's any particular lack of talent on anybody's part, but how does a great design team launch such a mediocre product? Have you run into that? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I think we've all run into that, right? I, I, if you ask designers, like at the very beginning of a project, what it's going to look like, what do we do? We run off, we do some comps, we take it into principle or we take it into some sort of prototyping tool. We have these beautiful animated GIFs that we want to put in our portfolio about how these the interactions are going to happen and it's going to expand really beautifully and we're going to have quick response times from all of the backend systems. We're, you know, all of the spacing and the padding is going to be immaculate, pixel perfect. And I think in the mind of many designers, that's our measuring rod. And when that's our measuring rod, anything we launch tends to be a disappointment to us because we've built this up in our mind. And I think a lot of this, the challenge comes from what I think is a, a bad organizational structures where design and development are often in two completely separate verticals. So design often lives under marketing or digital or channels or whatever in your, whatever maturity level you're uh, enterprises at, and then development lives under IT. And so what that means is that a lot of times uh, there's competing prioritization. There's what the developers get graded on and what the designers get graded on are two very different things. And then I think the other thing that's at the root of it is just this idea of uh, the way that designers think versus the way that developers think. And, and I do think that there are some really root level differences that Oftentimes, we either want to gloss over or we try to minimize instead of embracing it and figuring out how you can help bring both of those things together to create the, the best product that you can. So I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But yeah, I've definitely seen it happen, been a part of every product I launch I, is in some way not exactly what I imagined. So through the years, I think to stay in this business, you have to get pretty pragmatic about, about what you'll allow and what you'll... I completely agree with that. And there's a lot to that, to those statements that you just made that, that I'd love to unpack. I think the first thing my mind ran to was when you mentioned org structure, right? Yeah. That's something that's a passion of mine in dealing with both big orgs and medium-sized orgs. Like, how do you... Where do you put design? Where do you put development? Where do you put product? Do you put them all together? But then how do you nurture careers? 
right? Yeah. How do you, if they're all smushed together, how do you have someone leading them? I think that's, it's a tough nut to crack. And I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. Sure. Somebody asked me recently, what's the best org structure to do experience design in? Uh, and my response was none of them. Like pick one and go with it. Like it, I've seen good design happen and bad design happen in centralized matrix. Name an org structure. You can do good design or bad design. I think it has a lot more to do with relationships and a lot more to do with the people that are running these principles, these practices than it does to do with the org structure. But I will say, I think that the org structures of today have grown historically in these silos that are no longer helpful. And I'm going to talk really broadly here. And I want to make it clear, like, this is me talking to you. This is not me as a representative of any uh, company saying what, what we're going to do. But in my mind, I think it would be a really useful exercise to blow up the existing org structures and to start over and ask ourselves the question, if we could, if we want to build a digital product, what is the org structure that we would come up with. I don't think any of us starting from scratch would come up with this idea of, oh, IT is going to own the code. And then this other group is going to own experience strategy, but just the strategy part. And then this other team over here is going to design stuff. But that's, that clearly is uh, organic growth from where we came from. In a perfect world, we would all be on one team. You would have uh, one person or small group of people that owned the vision for what the team is building, and then everyone else would be aligned to that. And everyone would be aligned around metrics as well. Because part of the problem is many times in IT organizations, you're counting widgets, you're counting features. How many features can we deliver? And then on the design side, we're having the conversation of less but better. Like I know, let's not launch 40 features this year. Let's launch eight but let's make them awesome, right? Let's really knock those eight that people really use out of the park. But that doesn't work when you're not aligned around the metrics. And so I think it, no matter what organizational structure you, you use, it's really important to work hard to get alignment around your, what is success here? And a lot of times from, so as the leader of a design team, what that means is that I've, I have a lot of conversations with my development counterparts to say, look, here's what's important to us, what's important to you, and, and let's find a way to, to have a shared prioritization list, which is, it's just challenging uh, based on the, the traditional org structures. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love what you brought I up. I don't know if I have answers today. I just have more <laughs> questions for you. <laughs> I hope you didn't bring me on for answers. <laughs> No, it, this, this is great. I feel like I'm at a therapist and so I'm, I'm all for that. No, I, I love what you said about aligning on metrics. That's something that has been, you know, something that I've been really fascinated recently with not only just aligning on metrics for web projects, but the difference in upstream and downstream metrics that we're getting judged by. And that's something I've seen a lot of where our, our media metrics could be very different than the web metrics that could be very different than the sales metrics and maybe not aligned in a, in a direct path. And I, I love what you said about connecting with people, ha having lots of conversations with development partners. But I'd love to ask you when you look at upstream and downstream and the people like the orgs that are inputting into your site, the, the marketing and the media that are sending people to you, as well as the developers, like 
what types of conversations do you have to align on metrics? So the thing that I, whenever we're having metrics conversations, I always like to point out that there are leading indicators and then there are outcomes. Leading indicators are important because they tell you in the short term if you're moving in the right direction. But I always ask when we're having these discussions about what is the actual outcome we're trying to drive? So yes, for example, we want engagement around our insight articles. Why do we want that? What are we trying to drive? At the end of the day, really what we want is we want people to be able to find us on Google, right? So that's why uh, this content marketing has become such a huge deal for many companies. And you've got sites filled with content now where, whereas back in the day, we were trying to streamline it and only have the, the a certain core group of pages. What is the outcome? What are we really hoping to drive from that? And in the, um, the case of a bank, it's people, we want people to make better financial decisions. We want them to um, save more money. We want them to uh, get a, a better car loan rate. You know, whatever it is that these that the that were that these leading indicators are pointing to, it's great that people are reading the articles. But how do we measure the outcomes? How do we know that actually the intended effect? You know, that we're having the intended effect. That's a bigger discussion. And the thing that I find is whenever I bring that up in a meeting with development partners or whatever, it wakes them up out of their and this is for the design team too. We all have our KPIs that we're highly focused on. But when you have that outcomes conversation, it helps people pull up and say, oh, hold on. We really are all on the same team. And this is what we're really trying to accomplish. It's so easy for people to lose sight of that in the way that, that our orgs are structured. And so that tends to help a little bit. But then the other thing that we just have to do is be transparent with what things are important to us, what we're tracking and make sure that we're constantly sharing those with partners and asking them to share their like leading indicators with us. The, the thing that I've, so I, I have two kind of sayings about this uh, topic. The first one is it's easy for the machine to eat good design, right? So we put good design in the top and then as it moves through that good design gets crushed in this machine. And then the other, the other saying is if you, I don't remember the other saying, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. But so if we have, if we're being really transparent with other teams about what's important to us, then, oh, I remember what the other thing is now. Design is the easy part of design, right? The real challenge comes down to relationship building. If you can build good relationships, if you can show people that you care about their metrics. That's one of the big challenges that I think we have in this cold war between de design and development a lot of times is there's this idea that we know what's right and you don't. We're tracking the things that matter and the things that you're tracking don't. And it's never that blatant, but that's often the undercurrent of, of all of it, right? There's this idea that somehow we're the important part of this digital product. And I've seen it from both sides and it's very unhealthy from both sides. So like with my design team, we have conversations all the time about humility. We have discussions about if you catch yourself saying, 
things like they're a bunch of idiots. They don't know what they're doing. Call timeout. No, we're all smart. We're all uh, talented. Maybe what's happening is that there's a metric that they really care about that, that we need to be aware of so that we can help them with that. And uh, so uh, to me, good product design can only happen in an environment where where you've got great relationships built. And that doesn't mean you have to be friendly necessarily, because to some degree, that relationship is adversarial. Design is going to push and development is going to push back and, and vice versa. But being able to, at the end of the day, walk across the street and have a beer together, I think is super important to let people understand that you respect their skill set, you respect where they're coming from, and you want to help them succeed. And you're not just single-minded trying to push your own agenda. Uh, and, and that's way harder than design. If it were just create a great design, like there's thousands of designers out there that can do that. But finding consensus, building good relationships, influencing, that's the real tough stuff to me. Design is the easiest part of design. I love that. Abs- that's, absolutely. That's a, that's a great quote. This, this brings some hope to me because so much of what I feel like I do is consensus building, is having conversation, is building relationships. And sometimes I have this panic attack in the middle of the night. I'm like, I'm a design leader. Is that what I should be doing? I haven't opened Figma in a week. Should yeah. I? But it's really good validation to hear other people say the same thing. You have to build those relationships. You have to have, as Jeremy and I have said on the podcast before, you have to have as much empathy for your partners as you have for the humans who are going to use your products. Because all of that is involved in making sure what you envision the product being is what it actually ends up being. Because you're not, we're no longer webmasters in the mid, you know, 1990s. We have other people we're depending on to build these things together. We have product teams and you can't just do it all on our own. So I love that quote and thank you for sharing your, your wisdom on that. Yeah, the, the, definitely. And that's really, I became a webmaster, not out of desire, but more out of necessity. I was, I could design things and I tried to work with a couple of developers back in the late nineties, maybe 1999. And I just couldn't find anybody that had that was sensitive enough to design that I could work with in a way that that I could get what my vision was out the other side. And so I taught myself ASP, ASP slash BB script and slash JavaScript. I learned, I did some cold fusion. I wrote a couple of Perl scripts. I don't even understand. I look at that <laughs> work now and I'm like, how in the world did I ever figure that out? But that's what I used to resort to to get what I wanted was I just became a freelancer slash turnkey web creator person. And that's just not practical anymore. Just I think the idea of unicorn designers or full stack developers is silly and nobody is good at the whole stack of design or the whole stack of development. In the same way, it's even less realistic to think that somebody is going to be able to architect the database, integrate the APIs, design the site. So we just can't do that anymore, especially not at an enterprise scale. So yeah, really what we're, what our task is now is to be the, the operating language for the product design. 
right? We've got to operate at that base level and move back and forth between the design and development and find ways to help those two disciplines hear each other. Mm. Very true. Very true. So Griff, I, I know you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to, I'd like to push you a little bit on it. If you could start from scratch and mm -hmm. build the best possible cross-functional team to solve business problems or design problems or develop, to solve digital problems, mm -hmm. what would that team look like? So I've already seen this happen. I think one of the best teams that I've ever worked for or been a part of was our mortgage experience team uh, uh, many years ago. And what that looked like was uh, at the time we had started uh, that program with Adaptive Path. And so we had great partners and we, we had a team on uh, the enterprise side that we got a room and we said, look, I know that you report to IT and you report to the business and you report to process improvement, but we've got a room and uh, this was called the Larry room. Actually, it was named after uh, Larry, the flag guy. So if any of your listeners want to go look up Larry, the flag guy, he used to take, he used to go to cemeteries where they were burying service uh, members and line the roads with flags. And so he was just a cool guy and we named our room Larry after him because uh, uh, of the, the mission of, of the company we worked for. But anyway, so the Larry room was just a place where all of these people came and worked together every day. They still had their cubicles. They still had their desks. They could work from there if they wanted. But this team had business analysts. We had uh, process engineers. We had developers. We had leaders within development, bank leaders, mortgage leaders. And this is who was in the room. We were matrixed. I think it would be great if they weren't matrixed, if it was like actually one team under one leader. But we did this in a matrix way. But I think those are the kind of people that you need at the table, right? Development and design is one thing, but you need business at the table. You need process engineering at the table, especially for a product as complex as like mortgage. I know you guys work in the health insurance space. Like that's another one that's super complicated. So have, having those people all in one place um, it, under one kind of mission and mantle, we had when you walked into the room, we had missions, our mission statement on the wall about what we were trying to do. It was surrounded by ideas from these same people. Whenever we would do a workshop, we would include all those people in the workshop. So for this wasn't design going off and, and, and doing a thing. It was really bringing in experts from all of these different prin principles or uh, practices around the company. And that's what I think makes it really powerful uh, is that inclusion uh, of uh, different types of thinking and different types of um, uh, practices. Mm, definitely. And it, I bet since you were there every day, you saw each other every day, it was easy to remind each other of the outcomes you were striving for and to have a shared common outcome that you're, that you're going toward. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that we were all in the room, it, the other thing is it just made for, um, it, it meant that nothing was happening in one 
practice area that the other practice areas didn't know about. That's mm -hmm. a huge thing, right? It's just communicating across practice areas. Uh, development often has a whole roadmap of what they're doing. Design has a roadmap of what they're doing. Business has a whole other roadmap. That's the thing that we were able to do there is we had one roadmap and it was a shared roadmap that everybody knew how they plugged into. Um, and when we started the redesigning the website at the bank that I'm at right now, I actually did a really similar roadmap. And I, I gotta, I'll be honest with you, out of everything that we produce in the course of these two years, I'm really proud of that roadmap. That, that may mm -hmm. be my crowning achievement. I worked with the uh, storefront owners and our development lead and our, our AEM architects, and, and we created a roadmap in like April of one year, and it was a year and a half long roadmap, and we never had to go back and change. We nailed it. We said, this is what we're going to do. I will say that we slipped three weeks at the end of the project because of COVID. We lost some time in there because of we all of a sudden right in the middle of when we were designing the website, oh, COVID, we all have to work from home. And, and we really weren't ready for that from a uh, technology standpoint. So there was a little bit of a delay there, but in terms of the roadmap, we nailed it. And that was because we had the right people at the table to have the discussion. And the people we had at the table were practitioners. That's, mm -hmm. I think, the other really important thing to, to note about this. I, that's why I love leaders who are former practitioners, because they're not guessing. They're not uh, leaning on their people to try to give them some sort of a accelerated timeline. I know how long design work takes. I, the development resources that we had in that discussion knew how long their part of the process takes. And so when you have people who really understand the practice, you can build these great shared roadmaps. And I think that's hugely important. The other thing is that when you do, when you have that, that shared roadmap, and, and so I say this, um, like it's not agile versus waterfall. This is just like a really high level, like the first thing we've got to solve is we've got to figure out what we're doing with, with the retail portion of the site. And we're going to take four months to do that. It's these big rocks. And then you get to the point where you can break them down. But the bigger rocks, if, if you start there and make sure that everybody gets to check the, the boxes on their KPIs. Mm. So it's, again, it just goes back to that, how do you have really concrete, solid conversations with your partners in those different areas? Well, great. I keep, sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> See, I keep having this vision of a basketball coach trying to coach his players during the week, one player at a time, and then trying to bring them together on game day and hope that the plan executes the same way without actually having them practice together. There, there's just something about being in the room understanding each other, understanding the limitations and the strengths and being able to work towards those together that, that really makes a powerful team experience. So thank you for sharing that. Definitely. Griff, it has been so great to have you on the show today. We appreciate you sharing your experience and your stories with us around this topic. Could you tell us, if people wanted to, to follow you on social media, could you tell us how they could connect to you? Absolutely. Uh, I am everywhere as Think Griff. So I, I, I decided a few years ago that design was not really my deliverable. My, my real deliverable is thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm at Think Griff. It's thinkgriff.com. And, and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn there. And uh, yeah, that's the best way to, to 
to follow me. And I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on and for the invite. Really respect both of you from our, our time together at a previous employer and um, wish you guys <laughs> the best moving forward. You too, Griff. You too, Griff. Yeah, we absolutely. really appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah, awesome. Jared, I'm going to wrap us up with saying... Thank you to the listeners. We actually verified this week that we do have some subscribers, but actually more than we thought we did. And so that was a great surprise. So thank you to all of you that have subscribed. Please check us out on our website. We are at Making Digital Podcast on the social networks, all of the various ones. And you can search Making Digital Podcast on any major platform. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to get feedback, episode ideas. Or if you'd love to be on the show, we'd love to, to talk with you about that. But we really appreciate you as listeners. Yes, and if you're feeling particularly generous, please leave us a rating or review on one of those podcast platforms that Jeremy mentioned. But until next time, my name is Jared Stevens. And I'm Jeremy Carney. And together we are Making Digital. I'm not even going to do it this time. You, you didn't even try. Bye, Tobin. The views and ideas expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent those of any previous, present, or future employers. Or spouses. Or family. Peace out. <laughs>